Pat, thank you for reminding us of the glorious truth, the promise that our God is with us and will never forsake us. If you have your copy of God's Word, I ask you to please open it to the 23rd Psalm. We are working our way through this very well-known passage, just verse at a time and letting its truths sink in to us. Um, I want to share with you, of course, we're excited about the grandbaby. Yesterday, I was with Emma and was telling her, of course, we've told her all along, you know, that Campbell was here and everything's going well, and I was holding Emma's hand, and I said, Emma, are, if you're excited about seeing your, your nephew, will you squeeze my hand? And she gave it the tightest squeeze you wouldn't believe. So Annie M. is ready to, to see Campbell whenever, whenever he is over at the house. It's a joy walking through this psalm. I remember memorizing this when I was in the primary class at Clearwater Baptist Church. And it's a psalm that most of us are familiar with, but sadly we only think, and think about it often at funerals as it's printed on the back of the, the little obituary. But I want us to see that this psalm is about our lives now. How we're walking with the Lord now, and better yet, how He is walking with us, leading us and guiding us. So I direct your attention to it, even though today we'll be focusing on verse 3. I want to read the psalm in its entirety. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you please bow with me and let's pray. Oh, Father, this morning it has already filled my cup to overflow just being with your people. And Lord, hearing, hearing praise sung to you. Father, we ask you to give us fresh ears this morning. We confess that sometimes the familiarity of a passage can rob us of its meaning. So I ask you, Father, that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us to, to slow down. Help us, Father, to move beyond the things that would distract us from you. Forgive us if we're already thinking about what's going to happen later today or, Father, what the plans are for this week. Help us, Lord to be fully in this moment to walk with you to experience you and by your grace to have a foretaste of glory divine we pray this in the name of Jesus Amen now if you were to this is a bit of trivia if you were to be asked what the most visited house in America would be more than likely you would say the White House and you would be accurate. More people visit the White House any year than any other house in America. But this is what surprised me. If you'll go onto the screen, the second most visited house in America. 
Now, prior to doing the research for this, I would have said Biltmore House, just over the hill. But oh, no, 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 no. The second most visited house in America is not a house even open for tours. It's one you have to drive by. And it's located in California. If you'll go ahead, and you may not recognize that house. So I will give you a clue, the very next one. And it starts with a story about a man named Brady. More people drive by that house every year than visit Biltmore, which is mind-boggling. Now, this house, of course, is, is iconic because of the television show. But here's the surprising thing. That's only for the exterior of the show. The interior that we would see when we watched that, that sitcom is nothing like exists in that house. It's totally different, or I should say it used to be, until the HGTV network purchased that house for the paltry sum of $3.8 million and began to renovate it. So that now the inside of that matches what we always thought it was. Now here's the point I'm getting at. It's amazing that the inside of that looks nothing like we would have expected. And I wonder this. Does our inside match our outside? In other words, it's very easy when people ask, how are you doing? Well, I'm fine, I'm fine. But on the inside, our souls may be hurting. It's very easy for us to, to smile and laugh and act like everything's okay. But the reality is the interior may be very different. We may be very lonely and hurting. It's very easy to give the exterior the appearance of being pure and righteous, but inside there is lust and greed eating us away. So what we need, much like this house, we need an interior renovation. We need a restoration of the soul. And that's what verse 3 is about. The shepherd who leads us to still waters, the shepherd who leads us to green pastures, the shepherd who provides everything we need so that we have no want for anything, also renovates our very souls. Now let's start with this very simple question. Well, I say simple, but it's not really. When we talk about the soul and the renovation of the soul, what are we talking about? What is the soul? It's something philosophers and theologians have talked about and dove into. On one level, the soul refers to life in general. It becomes a, an overarching word for life. So, for example, in, in the early part of the 20th century, when the Titanic sank, it was reported that 1,347 souls or lives were lost at sea. It becomes a word that's very broad, talking about life. But the Old Testament doesn't leave us with that broad definition. There are very specific things about our life that are connected directly to our souls. For example, your soul will direct your desires. You want what you want because your soul wants it. In Genesis 34.3, there's a man by the name of Hamor that is talking with Judah and Reuben and Simeon about their daughter Dinah. Because Hamor's son Shechem loves her, desires her more specifically. 
And so when Hamor is talking about this, he says to the brothers, he says, the soul of my son desires your daughter or your sister. In other words, the soul is what was driving the longing and the passions. That's where they came from. The soul determines our affections, what we love. That's why we're told in Deuteronomy 13.3 to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul. Those two words are intertwined. Heart and soul are not two separate things. In fact, my understanding is they're really synonymous, driving our desires and our affections. Your soul can grieve. Job 30.16, Job says, my soul is poured out within me. It's a way of saying he's cried so many tears, there are no more tears in his soul. You and I can know what that is. Have you ever felt just empty inside? You've grieved so much, you feel like there's nothing left inside of you. That's your soul grieving. Soul is our, our being. It's what drives us. It's what makes you, you. It's that immaterial part, although it is connected with our physicality, that defines who we are. That's where verse 3 really begins. The English words have been re rearranged, the Hebrew text, so that it reads more smoothly. But in the Hebrew it really says, my soul he restores. Putting at the forefront of our thinking this idea that our souls need to be restored. Because to restore means to bring back to its original state. I mentioned the HGTV network. If you've listened or watched to it at any, you know that restoration is big business now. Buy an antique bookcase that has been, the paint has been stripped off of it. It's dinged, dented, broken. Put some time, put it in the hands of a master, and all of a sudden it comes out looking brand new. Or a car that is, is rusting, that is falling apart. A master mechanic gets a hold of it. A master body worker and rebuilds it, restores it so that it looks like new. It says that God is the master who begins to restore the very essence of who we are. He takes our desires and our affections and reshapes them, restores them to be focused on where they should be. He takes our loves and our longings and redirects them. He brings us back to where we need to be. He restores the vigor and the vitality and the strength that our souls lack. And the very fact that it says God restores our souls means that our souls are in a state of disrepair. We don't like to acknowledge that, but that is what has happened. Our souls are not what they ought to be. They are damaged. And they are damaged because of our innate rebellion against God. We don't have to be taught to rebel against God. We rebel against God naturally. Do you ever have to teach anyone to be angry, selfish, or jealous? No. That comes out because our souls are drawn to sin just like metal is drawn to a magnet. It becomes our default setting. That is exactly what David meant when he wrote, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He wasn't saying that his mother had some adulterous affair with his father. He was saying that my very being is tainted and even broken by sin. It becomes our default setting. But if I could be even more specific, sin destroys, our souls are broken. But habitual sin 
eats away at our souls like rust does that old car. The word that is used for paths in verse 3 is rut. In the Hebrew, it's a rut. You know, a rut is something that is dug out in a, in a dirt road. And you get in that rut, it's not easy to get out of. That's the image I want you to get in mind of what habitual sin does to our lives as we continually engage in it. Now, all sin destroys, but there is something about the pattern of habitual sin that when it is unbroken, dives, carves, deep ruts into our thinking. And the more we engage in habitual sin, the more difficult it becomes to get out of it. When I was a student at Carson Newman, some new sidewalks were installed. They were installed at a, a big L, in other words, 90 degrees. But being smart students, we realized the basic geometric principle that the shortest distance between two points is what? A straight line. So even though the sidewalk was an L, we made a hypotenuse. See, I remember geometry. So we start cutting across the grass, and guess what happens after time? As students walk across it, the grass gets beaten down till eventually a path is worn, till eventually that ground becomes hardened, so that eventually nothing green, nothing alive will grow there because of the feet walking across it continually. That is the picture of what happens to our souls as we engage in sin. It wears our souls out, creating ruts, patterns where there is no life. Souls become deadened. And it's those habitual sins that we often dismiss as just saying, that's only the way that I am. I'm just angry. I just speak my mind. I can't help it. I remember reading a book by Charles Swindoll where he asked the question, what if we treated other issues like we do those sins sometimes? You know where we say, well, I'm just, that's just who I am. I'm just hot-tempered. What if we did that with an alcoholic? Well, that's just him. You just know how it is. It's just the way he is. We can't do anything about it. We wouldn't be satisfied with that. Our souls need restored because sin takes a heavy toll upon them. If I can mention one other thing that causes our souls to need restoration, it's this. We all live in a frantic pace. Busy. I mean, how many of us really, if truth be told, woke up this morning already thinking about the week ahead? Already thinking about everything we've got to do. And it wears us out. How many times have your mind, has your mind been so worked up and anxious because of the demands? And there's no peace. Now, I started to think this is just an issue of the 21st century, but it's not. Being an Andy Griffith show aficionado, my mind went back to an episode. And this is the early 1960s black and white Andy Griffith. A visiting preacher came into town. And you know what he preached about? How hectic life was. There's no time just to sit on the front porch. That's 1960. I think life treats us, our souls, like a, a tire on a bicycle. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you've had bicycles stored away in the garage and you decide it's time to get out and ride. So you go out and you get out your bicycle only to find out the tires are flat. And you start thinking, who did this? Did some hooligan sneak into my garage and deflate my tires? Those crazy kids. I can say that now, I'm a grandpa. <laughs> Over time, the air, it leaks out. 
And I wonder if that's what happens to us. Difficult conversation. Shh, little air is out of our souls. Stressful day. Anxiety. Shh, a little more of our soul is deflated. So let me ask you, what are you doing in life to reinflate? What are you doing in life to nurture your soul, to break that pattern of habitual sin? You see, the truth is, we will try to do little odds and ends. In other words, we'll recognize, man, I'm worn out, I need to take a day off. And day off, taking a day off is good and necessary. But the problem is, is that after that day or that week off, we fall back into the same patterns. So something has to happen where there is a continual redoing, a continual refocusing, a continual refilling, where our souls are restored, a breaking of that sin pattern. And the thing is, that can only happen through God. Our efforts to restore our souls will fall short. They can't reconstruct what only God can build. So that's why the text here is very clear. It is our shepherd that restores our soul. The work of soul restoration is something that only God himself can do. It is God who restores and leads. Now, there's a connection between the first part of this verse and the latter. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Now we get our clue. How does God restore our souls? Well, I've already mentioned that the word for path deals with ruts, habits. He leads us in patterns of righteousness, pathways of righteousness. He leads us in a righteous life. Now, righteousness means to do what is in, in accord with God's will and God's way, which means this. If he must lead us in the paths of righteousness, it means we are not on the paths of righteousness right now. We have to change paths. We have to make a change where we're going in one direction that is the path of unrighteousness and go in the direction of righteousness. And that is called repentance. Repent means to turn. Now, interestingly enough, look back to verse 3. The word restores is the very same Hebrew word for repent. You could very well translate verse 3 to say this. He causes my soul to repent. So the way God brings restoration of the soul is he leads us to repent and turn from those destructive things that, that kill our souls. Now, of course, this past Thursday was October 31st, and thank you to everyone who, who helped us as a congregation to reach out to this community with over 900 people coming through uh, this building. But October 31st is more than just giving out candy. It's known as Reformation Day. Because on October 31st of 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, or castle door. The 95 theses, the 95 statements that he nailed to the door were entitled Disputation on the Power of Indulgences. Now here was the issue for Luther. At that time, the Roman Catholic Church, which was the only church, would sell indulgences. In other words, if you had sinned or knew you were going to sin, if you gave money, it was kind of like saying, okay, you can go ahead and do that, you're covered because you've given $100. That absolutely made Luther righteously angry. And Luther went on to write these words and said, of, of paying for forgiveness, he said, repent. The price has been paid. Repent. 
And Luther wrote, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. In other words, the life of one who follows Christ is characterized by turning away from sin and seeking God. Because in seeking God, we find life. And God in His graciousness brings about hearts and souls that repent and turn to Him. He causes us to do that. He works within us so that we would stop desiring the things that destroy and we would desire life. He brings us from death unto life as the good shepherd who restores our souls. He does this through His Word. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, restoring the soul. And once again, the word reviving is the word repent. Repenting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And as a good shepherd, He leads His sheep on the safe path to get them to abundant pastures. God works so that we will enjoy a fullness of soul. The Scripture points this out time and time again. That not only in the salvation that He gives us, which makes us brand new, but even as we struggle in this world with temptations that never seem to go away, He guides us. You see, I think a picture of God's restoration in the book of Ruth. You know that Old Testament book really is more about Naomi than it is Ruth. Because Naomi and her husband, they end up going to a faraway land to Moab because times are hard. And there... Their three, three boys end up marrying some Moabite women, which in Israel was not supposed to happen. Her, three, her husband and her three sons die. And that's where Naomi says, don't call me Naomi anymore. See, Naomi means pleasant. See, that's not who I am. Call me Mara. Mara means bitterness. Her soul was no longer pleasant. It was bitter. Cried out. Empty. As the story goes, Ruth refuses to leave her mother-in-law. They go back to Bethlehem. And long story short, Ruth ends up marrying Boaz, a kinsman redeemer. And it's interesting to me how the book of Ruth ends. It ends with the grandmother holding the baby because you know once the grandmother gets that baby it ain't going back and the women are praising God and Naomi says call me Naomi now because she's holding her grandson Obed who would father a boy named Jesse who would have a boy named David redemption she says, my soul has come back to being pleasant because redemption, redemption, God is at work. So our souls can be turned away from the emptiness to no life because of the redemption brought about through Jesus Christ. And God leads us to Jesus that we would forsake those things that destroy our souls and he would restore them. And the reason God does this is clear. Look at the end of verse 3. For his name's sake. For God's reputation. For the sake of His glory, for the sake of His honor. 
Now we often talk about make a commitment to follow God, make a commitment to believe in Jesus. And those words, that language is accurate. However, I want to remind you that God has made a commitment to you. Every one of us who have placed faith in Him, God has committed Himself to you. He has said, you are my people and I will be your God. You are my child and I will be your father. He has made a commitment to us that He will never leave us or forsake us. It's become a cliche in sports that coaches used to use and probably still do. That the name on the front of the jersey is more important than the one on the back. You know, your name's on the back and the team's on the front. So that team name is more important. God's name, God's honor is more important than anything else. The reason being is because His reputation, His glory, His honor is the bedrock of our salvation. So God's reputation is at stake. In other words, if He does not lead us to green pastures, if He does not lead us to still waters, if He does not restore our souls and lead us in the paths of righteousness, He is not a good shepherd. But guess what? Our God is faithful. Our God never lies. Our God is the good shepherd. And He begins a task and He will see it through so that no one can ever say, God lied to me. In other words, we can say God is faithful and true because He guards His reputation. And our salvation is based upon God's Word and His promise. So therefore, we have hope. We have hope because we know God accomplishes this through Jesus. That's why Jesus, I believe in John 14, 6, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way. I am the path. The path of righteousness that God leads us on is Christ. He restores our soul through Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says that, Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. So believer, God has restored your soul and he is in the process of doing that until the day he returns and our bodies are redeemed we will struggle against temptations but know that God is at work and we do not have to walk around with empty souls so I ask you this morning what is the state of your soul How's your soul? Is your soul empty? Angry? Fearful? Some of you may say, Pastor, honestly, my soul is overflowing this morning. Hallelujah. But I want you to know that we serve a God who has promised He will lead us in the restoration of our souls. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. Pastor Nathan and I are going to be at the front if anyone would like us to pray with you. And we're available to do that. But more than anything, no. The altar's open for you to come and pray. If it's one or many, be obedient to the Spirit of God. As the Spirit is speaking to you this morning, it's because He wants you to know the restoration that God gives. He is drawing you to Christ. And remember... That's how God restores our souls, bringing us to repentance. And also recognize there may be changes that God is calling for in your life. He's working to restore our soul, but we're working against Him because we give no margin in life. No time to 
be nurtured on His Word. No time for discipleship. No time for fellowship with other believers. And the Lord may be saying, you know, you're deflating your own soul by doing those things. So let this morning be a time you, you drive a nail in the ground and say, no more. I'm tired of feeling soul weary. I'm going to lead us in this prayer. And then as Tony leads us in singing, if you want to come and pray. You may do that. Father, thank you for being a good shepherd. Thank you for never lying. Thank you, Father, that because of your honor's sake, you are going to fulfill your word. Father, all of us stand empty before you. We need to have our souls restored and filled. Grant it, Father. Grant it, Lord, for the glory of your name we pray. Stand, please, if you will. And as we sing, if you need to come and pray or you want me or Nathan to pray with you, we are available to do that.